Okay, Christian order part three. Most difficult chapter in the Bible, they say. So they say for us to interpret. Last week, we started talking about gender distinctives. Is this too loud? Okay. Gender distinctives and the different biblical roles, R-O-L-E-S, and functions that men and women have in the body of Christ. We also looked at the same in regard to the Trinity and the function of each member of the Trinity. And we covered all of that as we interpreted one verse, really, which was 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. So just in brief review, very brief review, what have we seen so far in the first three verses of this chapter? In verse 1, we learned, Paul said, Be imitators of me, just as I am also an imitator of Christ. Verse 2, Now I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And then verse 3, Pastor Steve just read it, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. This morning, obviously, we're going to move on from verse 3 to verses 4 through 17. These are the verses that many of you have been waiting for. You tell me privately. I hope, hope they don't disappoint. Uh, this is largely going to be an introduction and an overview to these verses. Next week, we'll get much more specific. I just want you this morning to get the general context and content I'd like you to ask questions like, what does this mean for us today in our church services? Um, we'll look more closely at that next week, but it's a question we want to start asking ourselves from the very get-go. Some of the other things in this chapter will be blatantly obvious this morning. There will be no elaboration on them next week because they are blatantly obvious and I think the Holy Spirit will show you what, which category they fall in. For the sake of context, please follow along with me in your Bible as I begin with verse 3 one more time. Okay, and I'm going to read down through verse 6. But I want you, Paul says, to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying and prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Verse 6, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her hair, her head shaved, let her cover her head. Yikes, there's a lot there. 
Those are some pretty strange words to our postmodern ears. They just are. You know? At the very least, they sound foreign. After hearing these words, one must remember that even though they may seem obscure or ambiguous, that doesn't mean that they take away from the main meaning and teaching regarding the message or regarding the passage of Scripture that we're looking at here in the 21st century. Wearing head coverings may no longer speak to our church culture, but that doesn't mean that there aren't fundamental truths in this text that are applicable for us this morning. Who knows, you may personally come away from this study wanting to wear a head covering next week for praise and worship. You wouldn't be alone, believe it or not. Some of you might be surprised to hear that, but you wouldn't. Many, and I, I say that without reservation, many women in the Eastern Orthodox and Russian churches wear head coverings. Many women in European countries, Catholic, Russian, um, Greek, and then we get into denominations, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Anabaptist, both conservative Anabaptist and historical, which would include historically Mennonites and Amish. All of those that I just mentioned wear head coverings. Not every woman, but a lot of the women do. Pentecostal churches, Church of God, Church of God in Christ, which is who the Pentecostal Assemblies of God came out of. A lot of them wear head coverings. And believe it or not, folks, a lot of Reformed Presbyterian churches, women wear head coverings. Or just overview content. We'll digest all that next time, okay? Uh, I'm sorry, I have to mention that I used to be a campus minister. Did you know that? I used to be a campus <laughs> minister? I don't know if you knew that or not. Uh, I had the privilege of attending many different church services and many different church services representing um, every denomination imaginable as a, as a campus chaplain. And I can remember the reverence for the Lord, most of all, in the handful of churches that I was in where some of the women wore head coverings. That sticks out in my mind. I'm not saying that just because of the subject matter this morning. I'm being, I'm being truthful with you. There, there was a great reverence in those church services that I did not get in other church services. And I'm not saying that head coverings is 100% the reason why. I'm just saying there was more of a reverential respect and adoration for the Lord in some of those Christian faith traditions where women wore head coverings. And we'll talk more about that later. Moving on. Even though there is some strange wording here, in this section of scripture, that does not mean that we will do away with the basics of interrogating the text. In other words, there's nothing here to suggest in these words, in these verses, that we should take any shortcuts or that we should interpret this word any differently than we do every week 
which is we interpret through an inductive approach of interpreting scripture. We're going to use the same principles of exegesis that we always do. We look for repetitive key words, right, in the text. We look for key words that lead to key phrases. And then we look at those phrases, and it typically leads us to chapter themes, book themes, and even universal themes from Genesis to Revelation. We'll use the five W's and the H, who, what, when, where, why, and how. Asking of the text, who is speaking? What are they speaking about? Who are they talking to? What does this mean? How does it apply to me? That's the way we interpret scripture. We're going to continue to do that despite how strange some of these verses are. With that said, may I remind you, context is king. And context will play a large role here. Now follow me on this, okay? From our view of verse 3 last week, we see that since Christ is the authority over men, and since men are the authority over women, then it follows that no man should wear a head covering when he prays or prophesies, but a woman should. I'm going to read that again because it's a lot, okay? Verse 3 last week, we see, we saw that since Christ is the authority over men and since men are the authority over women, then it follows that no man should wear a head covering when he prays and prophesies, but a woman should. That's Paul speaking, not me, okay? It is a sign, the head covering for a woman is a sign of reverential subjection. Remember last week we talked about submitting and subjecting. It's a sign of reverential subjection to God, who is the head or authority over Christ, and Christ, who is the head or authority over man, and the man, who is the head or authority over women. Remember last week we talked about authority meaning responsibility, and we talked about what some of those responsibilities were. That's the tree I'm still barking up here before we elaborate on this. Paul objects to men wearing head coverings in verse 4. And you'll want to follow along with me. When I, when I say a verse, look at, your, look at your Bible and follow along. He objects to wearing head coverings in verse 4 for men because such adornment would be shameful and shockingly unacceptable, even disgraceful as the New American Standard translation puts it. We have to ask ourselves, why? <coughs> why? Because that's what women wore. That's why. If a woman wore a head covering, then it would be disgraceful for a man to wear a head covering because that's what women wore. That's chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. So Paul is saying that a man who wears a head covering is a disgrace and a woman who doesn't wear a head covering 
is a disgrace. So with that said, one could say that if a man wore a head covering, he would be portraying himself as a woman. So if that is true, according to our text, then the opposite must be true. If a woman did not wear a head covering while praying and prophesying, her obstinance in refraining from adorning herself properly would be shameful. Verse 5. Paul says she disgraces her head. Paul says in verse 5 that she would be no different than the woman that shaved her head. Why? Because she'd be dressing like a man. Men shave their heads, not women. Okay? Verse 6, For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Again, almost sounds like a Dr. Seuss book, doesn't it? You see, a woman's failure to wear a head covering is analogous to her having her hair cut off or cut very short in a crew cut type of way. Every woman in that culture of that day would have been ashamed of appearing in public with her head shaved or her hair cut short because then she would look like a man. Pay particular attention to that word culture. We live in a different culture today. And we're going to see how that plays into what we believe today and what we accept and don't accept about these verses today. I'm just telling you today what Paul said and what he means for when he wrote this. Then Paul clearly conveys, if you want to jump all the way to verse 15 of chapter 11, Paul clearly conveys in 11.15 that a woman's long hair is her glory. Rock-row, shaggy. If a man has long hair, this is verse 14. If a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. So a woman has long hair, it's to her glory. It's beauty, according to Paul. And if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. Because, according to Paul, he would look like a woman who has long hair. If we compare verse 14 and 15, it is clear for Paul, if a man wears long hair, it is a dishonor to him. And as I said, because such long hair is the particular glory of a woman, i.e., if a man wears long hair, he looks like a woman. I know I said that twice, but I want to drive it home. If we take it a step further and we examine verses 5 and 6 in light of verses 14 and 15, we see 
that for a woman to wear her head or her hair, I should say, short or to shave her hair is contrary to what brings her glory, which is namely long hair. That's what Paul is saying. Okay? To wear her hair short is to wear her hair like a man, chapter 11, verse 14. Thus, we can conclude that Paul wants women to wear head coverings while praying and prophesying because to do otherwise, very important folks, would be to confuse or blur the sexes or genders and in so doing, give the shameful impression that women are behaving like men. Remember I said it's all about gender distinction. In the interest of the five W's and the H, we need to ask, on whom or what is the man or woman bringing shame to if he or she is not adorned properly. In verse 4, Paul says that the man who has a head covering dishonors his head. Verse 5, he says that a woman without a head covering dishonors her head. What does he mean by the word head in these verses? The word clearly refers to what we looked at last week in verse 11, or, or chapter 11, verse 3, authority. It has to do with authority. Don't get away from thinking that it doesn't refer to one's physical head, because it does. We're talking about physical heads here. There's no metaphor, is what I'm trying to say, okay? In verse 4, first use of the word head, uh, I'm sorry, first rendition of it being a physical head, verses 5, 7, and 10 also refer to one's physical head. As a matter of fact, Paul comes right out and uses the phrase, quote, symbol of authority, end quote, in verse 10, to demonstrate this, right? As we have seen over and over again now, the head is a symbol of authority. The head is a symbol of authority. That authority represents responsibility within those roles that we talked about and those functions that we talked about as men and women, gender distinct. It is clear that what Paul means is that those who do not adorn their physical heads in the proper way bring shame on their heads, i.e. on themselves in this context. And please note that there's respective glory to both the man and the woman. The man just doesn't, the man doesn't get the glory. The man and the woman get the glory in how they act out Paul's message here. How they present themselves as their gender, as their assigned at birth gender, okay? So if we bring glory in to the subject of gender, then 
antithetically, we bring we can bring disgrace to the subject of gender and disgrace to God if a man and a woman choose to distort the glory of their gender by acting outside of Paul's instruction for them. Does that make sense? So let me give you a modern day example of those who distort the God intended glory of their gender. I have quite a bit of ministry experience with um, the gay and lesbian community going all the way back to my beginning as a campus minister. And I have more experience with self-proclaimed lesbians. And I say self-proclaimed because I want you to know that I did not label them lesbians. They label themselves lesbians. That's what they call themselves. I've had the privilege of seeing God miraculously bring some lesbian young adult women out of that lifestyle. And I have also unfortunately seen more young women who um, no one would have ever guessed uh, would be anything but heterosexual, let alone anything but a fruit-bearing Christian. And we would have never guessed that they would commit apostasy and walk away from the Christian faith to live in a lesbian lifestyle. I know of two girls who led worship on campus. You would, I would have, if you told me that that they were gonna leave the ministry and go into a lesbian lifestyle, I would have told you you were nuts. But that's what they did. So, Here's the example I said give you of those who distort the God-intended glory of their gender. One of the most common things today among lesbians is for them to wear a certain hairstyle. These hairstyles come in and they go out. But right now, this is the popular one, okay? You've probably seen it. Many lesbians will shave one side of their head Okay, down to a crew cut and they will leave the other side of the hair long and they'll flip it over and over. You with me? Okay, shaking your heads. Um, They flip it over exposing the shaved side, I should say, or the shorn uh, side of their head uh, so that it looks masculine. Um, And the side of the long hair when they want it to looks feminine. There's a masculine masculinity and a femininity in that haircut, both, okay? And they have no idea that they are displaying the reality of the Apostle Paul's very words in 1 Corinthians 11. Isn't it just like Satan to mock God with a shaved head on one side and long hair on the other? Given what we just read, about long hair and shaved heads. This is what Satan does. A haircut 
where he mocks it. Guess what the pagan prostitutes in Rome and in Corinth did? (laughs) They wore their hair the same way. They either partially shaved it or they shaved it completely off. Temple prostitutes. Now, let me be clear. I am not saying that every woman who wears her hair like that is a lesbian or a temple prostitute. I've seen heterosexual women wear their hair like this, but it is indeed, if you don't believe me, go to Lawrenceville and go to Squirrel Hill and you'll see that this is a hairstyle worn mainly by lesbian women, not heterosexual women. And it's a hairstyle that, whether intended or not, blurs the line of gender distinctives. Again, who do you think's behind that? Do you think it's their own depraved state or do you think it's the father of lies? Maybe a little of both. But I believe it's mostly the father of lies. The devil is so bent on being antichrist that he will do whatever he can to eradicate that which is proper, especially among genders. He influences certain women to wear their hair shaved like a man in order to distort the beauty of their long hair that the Bible depicts as beautiful and glorious on a woman. In keeping with this example, and conversely, if I might add, the devil influences certain men to wear their hair in feminine ways in order to distort the glory of man in a way that God did not intend. Example. This is my example, not Paul's. Akin to a shaved head on a woman is a man bun. Don't be offended if any of you men have man buns. There are biological males, biological males, who feel like they should wear their hair up in a bun like a girl. Ironically, some Bible scholars, listen to this, some Bible scholars in their interpretation of this text make a very good case for the possibility that the head covering Paul is speaking of in chapter 11 isn't a veil, but it is long hair up in a bun on the top of the head. And what Paul is doing here is he's talking about the long hair being beautiful and the woman letting her hair down. So, and by the way, one of my favorite theologians and some of your, your favorite theologian, um, Tom Schreiner, believes this interpretation, okay? So just think about that for a minute, whether it be a hat or a prayer shawl or a babushka, whatever it is, I've seen women pray in all three of those things. Um, Think about hair up in a bun and a woman letting that down for her glory and her reverential respect as she prays and worships and prophesies in church. If that's true, then like I said, isn't the devil a trip? In a gross perversion of everything that God calls good, beautiful, and glorifying, the devil's gonna step in 
and in this case, influence a large segment of men all over the world to put their hair up in a bun like a woman. Fortunately, excuse me, fortunately, the fad is waning. It's going away. See less and less hair bun, hair men with buns. Anyhow, I could give you more examples of how Satan has perverted gender distinctions, but I really don't need to, because you know you know what they are. I mean, if you have two eyes and you don't live under a rock, you can see how Satan is perverting the genders in our society. I can give you, for instance, from back a little further. Do you remember in the early 2000s how guys were, high school guys, young adult guys were wearing capri pants? Do you remember that? And girls' jeans? I mean, I knew guys that were buying their jeans in the girls' department so that they would be tighter. Or, you know, Satan also can confuse genders and confuse what the society thinks about gender, or should think about gender, I should say, with um, 80s male rock bands who wore big hair and makeup. I mean, how many, it's just about every rock band in the 80s wore big hair and makeup, okay? Why? <laughs> it, ask yourself that in regard to what we're studying and in regard to what the devil does. And you could see into his plans, I guess I should say, schemes. And of course, there were female rockers in the 80s who dressed like men. I'm not going to name them because I like most of them. Anyway. <laughs> Satan, the father of lies, wants to blur the lines between male and female genders, plain and simple. Done a fantastic job. He's, he's doing a great job right now. He's moved on. I mean, he's moved on from man buds and capri pants and to, to full-blown gender transformation. He's not only selling dudes on wearing their hair like girls, He's downright selling them on the notion that they can actually be a girl if they want to. Or he's also selling them on the notion that they could be a man and have babies. Of course, you've all seen this, right? Women who have transitioned into men and stopped taking their, their male hormones so that they can revert back to female just to have a baby. Then after they have the baby, they take their male hormones and they revert back. 25 years ago, if I would have told you that that was going to happen in our society, what would you have said to me? Yeah, crazy, Mike. You're nuts. And if that's not bad enough, Satan's very thorough. He's turned gender pronouns upside down. The, dev the, the devil's come a long way, hasn't he? When I was a kid, late 60s, early 70s, grade school kid, boys wore shorts on two separate occasions and two separate occasions only. You wore shorts in gym class and you wore swimming shorts when you went swimming. If you wore, at least in my school, 
if you wore shorts, if you were a guy and you wore shorts for anything other than gym class and swimming, you'd get beat up. You would. You would get beat up. So, I'm not condoning violence. I'm just giving you one example, one little example of how quickly and thoroughly Satan can change the society to fit his purposes. Obviously, in the 80s, all guys were wearing shorts, including yours truly, but in the 70s, 60s, not so. Anyway, look at what Satan has done between 1960 and 2023 across the world, not just in this country, but across the world. You can't deny that he isn't at the forefront of this deception of the genders. You can't. He's an angel of light, as scripture calls him. But you also have to remember that he can only do what God allows him to do. Period. We see this all throughout the Bible, especially in the book of Job. God sets boundaries for Satan. He could only go as far as God would allow him to go with Job. He couldn't go any further. But lately, this is just my opinion, the Lord has allowed Satan to do some serious damage. As we've talked about before, when we talked about apologetics, we exist in time. God exists outside of time. God controls time and he controls when and how and what time things will play out to his desired end before he brings it to naught for his glory. That's what God does. He's sovereign over Satan. He's sovereign over everything. And the Bible is clear in numerous passages that time is running out and it'll cease eventually, to quote Phil Keggy in his song, Time. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Evil men and imposters, now I'm sorry, I went from Matthew right into 2 Timothy. Evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's 2 Timothy 3.13. So let me ask you something this morning. We have only scratched the surface here. 1 Corinthians 11.4 onward, I mean. But tell me, has what we've learned so far lent any credence to these scriptures that I just read? The examples highlight the scriptural truth. I mean, do you think that wickedness has increased in your lifetime, especially over the past decade? Or do you think that it has decreased? We all are going to say the same thing. Evil has increased in our lifetime. Do you think that men are being more deceived or less deceived in culture today? They're being more deceived. Do you think that there are more imposters or less imposters in the church? 
Amy and I were talking on the way over. We were counting all of the word faith preachers who now have $60 million jets. There's five of them. $60 million jets. Imposters. How about in the world? Do you think the love of most is growing cold or do you think there's a revival somewhere that we can't see? Do you think that Satan is behind the blurring of the genders? I'll ask you again. Do you think he's behind the entire trans movement? And I would be completely amiss this morning if, if, if I mentioned all this doom and gloom concerning the world we live in and, didn't, and did so without presenting the other side of the coin. We read in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, as I said a moment ago, doom and gloom. How about if we look at that same chapter, okay? But this time, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says to Timothy, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind rejecting in regard to the faith. I should say rejected in regard to the faith. Verse 9, listen to this verse. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. If you keep a close eye, folks, on this gender-confusing trans movement, you will know, you will see, that in the UK, and in France, and in Canada, and in other progressive countries around the world, they started this whole trans thing, they implemented it into their society much earlier than us. We're the last ones to the table with this thing. They've been doing the trans surgeries for 15 years longer than we have. These types of, I'm talking trans surgeries on kids, okay? So they're way ahead of us in this. But their folly has become obvious to all, even themselves. If you read the news, the stupidity of the movement in these countries has become, has become quite apparent. How? They're seeing plainly, and they're now admitting publicly, that the long-term results of children who were encouraged to have sex change procedures at ages 14 and 15, who are now in their 20s and early 30s, have come forward, forward and are saying that it was the biggest regret and mistake of their lives. And they want to revert back to the gender that they were born with, and they can't because their parts have been already mutilated. This is such, so prevalent in these European countries that they're committing suicide. Now, here in this country, they'll tell you in the news that if you don't have a sex change, the kid's going to commit suicide. But over there, they've had the sex change and they're committing suicide. So, can't revert back to your God-given gender. So, as I said, the folly of the trans world is becoming obvious to all of these other countries. And I, I believe it's going to, this is just me, I think it's going to become obvious to 
the people in our country that this isn't, it already is amongst the general population. There aren't many that agree this is a good idea. Loudest voice, squeaky wheel, gets the attention. My prayer is that, obviously, there will be no suicides or surgeries in our country regarding this. I just pray that people will begin to see the grave absurdity in trying to encourage a child to take puberty blockers and hormones from the opposite gender. I literally pray that. Okay, moving on. We're getting to the end. Okay. Had to check the time. As I said earlier, what we did this morning is an introduction and somewhat of an overview of the initial subject matter of 1 Corinthians 11. I say initial because it's the first part of the chapter, not the second part of the chapter. We have yet to finish, obviously, the rest of these verses that I read, that we read this morning as part of our text. We'll do that next week. We need to ask, though, I'd like you to ask. This week, as you're mulling this over and as you review these verses, is it still a disgrace today for a man to wear long hair and a woman to wear short hair, like Paul alludes to in our text? Is this something we should be concerned about today? We'll talk about it next week. Should a woman cover her head when she prays in our church culture today? We still have a lot more to study on that. How would a Christian woman show that she is subject to authority of the Christian head, be it the father and son as head and or her husband as head? How would she show a respect and a reverence for that Authority. And lastly, is gender just as important today as it was in Paul's day, or is it even more important today due to how quickly evil seems to be saturating this subject matter? My prayer is for us to be able to satisfactorily answer all of those questions before we finish this chapter. There are always going to be people within these four walls and within the sound of my voice on the internet who are going to hear teaching and preaching like this and as such, they are going to begin to list their regrets about their previous actions and or behavior regarding such things. Getting the tickle back that I had last week, standing up here. Almost done. In so doing, I'm talking now 
again, about people who have regrets from their actions and their behavior regarding these things. And in so doing, beat themselves up with what they could have done, what they should have done, what they could have done better, especially in regard to relationships with spouses, children, teens, and young adults. Perhaps they are sorry that they went down a certain road that they now see was folly. And they may feel like it might be too late to change course because that proverbial ship has sailed. I'd like to speak to those people for a moment. Actually, I'd like Martin Lloyd-Jones to speak to those people for a moment. He said this, why believe the devil instead of believing God? Rise up and realize the truth about yourself that all the past is gone and you are one with Christ and all your sins have been blotted out once and forevermore. Let us remember, Joan says, that it is sin, it is a sin to doubt God's word. It is a sin to allow the past which God has dealt with to rob us of our joy and our usefulness in the present and in the future, end quote. Regrets get you nowhere, church. They paralyze you, they slow you down, they impede you in your sanctification process. Do not beat yourself up because the decisions that you made in the past regarding these subjects that we're going over we have all said and done ridiculously foolish things, most of which we can't take back. So please know this. The power of sin to torment and destroy your soul has been beaten. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west so far, does he remove our transgressions from us? Paul said, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that Christ, Ephesians chapter one, verse seven, in him, in that Christ, we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You are forgiven, past, present, and future. To believe anything other is a sin. Be in prayer. Be in the word. Be in fellowship. Let's pray.